Hello and welcome to a very special 100th episode of the BSB podcast. My name is Dr. Matt Barnard and I'm the editor of the podcast and I'm delighted that we're able to mark this milestone through an interview with Professor Sean Gallagher. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the BSB podcast is a regular audio streaming service free to all. Its aim is to promote the British Society for Phenomenology and its activities, as well as to preserve, archive and share the work of phenomenologists associated with the Society. We are currently on Season 5 and have, over the last couple of months, released episodes taken from our 2020 annual conference, Engaged Phenomenology. However, for the 100th episode, we wanted to do something a little different to celebrate this milestone and so have specially recorded an interview with Sean Gallagher. Sean is interviewed by Hannah Berry and Jesse Stanier, and you can hear more from them in episodes 98 and 99 of the podcast, just published last weekend. You'll also find the biographies for Sean, Hannah, and Jesse in the description of this episode in your podcast player. For now, let me hand over to Hannah and Jesse. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. This is Jesse and Hannah with a very special guest for the 100th episode of the British Society for Phenomenology's podcast, Professor Sean Gallagher. Sean is Lillian and Murray Moss Professor of Philosophy at the University of Memphis and Professorial Fellow at the School of Liberal Arts, University of Wollongong in Australia. He has held numerous visiting research positions around the world as a leading researcher in such areas as phenomenology, cognitive science, embodiment, agency and hermeneutics. And you can read more about his exciting work in the description. We are really delighted to be speaking with him today. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Okay, thank you for inviting me. So we'd just like to kick this episode off with insight into how you first got interested in the subject and what phenomenology means for you. Yeah, um, I think as an undergraduate, I was uh, uh, reading uh, in philosophy and uh, I, I was introduced to the existentialists by one of my professors. Uh, so I started really uh, getting so interested in uh, people like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Albert Camus. Uh, and uh, I think it was really by reading uh, Sartre that I, I was wondering, you know, where he was <laughs> coming from, so to speak. And, uh, of course, he, he kept mentioning Husserl and Heidegger and Hegel uh, uh, as well. But uh, I think it was really uh, tr- uh, my interest in existentialism that sparked my interest in in phenomenology, so that when I went on to grad school, I, I remember I walked into uh, as a professor uh, Jack Caputo uh, uh, his office and and said uh, yeah, I I really wanted to to dig into phenomenology and he, he just I didn't know who he was at the time <laughs> but uh, uh, he you know he was the perfect person he was so heavily uh, into Heidegger at that at that point so. Um, I, I think I really focused on phenomenology in grad school, uh, and so my graduate training really is in phenomenology. Um, and when I look back at, uh, when I go back and read uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, I think really he is doing phenomenology. Uh, so the existentialism has sort of been shifted to the side, and I really, uh, I really find fascinating the phenomenological detail uh, of his analysis. Sure, it's often a bit like um, tracing a family tree when you first get into phenomenology and, and kind of finding all the connections and the references between different thinkers. And I, yeah, I think it's quite um, 
common that people find they're kind of a light on existentialists and realize that there's there's a lot more going on beneath the surface so it's quite interesting mm. that 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 was your starting point too oh yes yeah and uh, then i read a huge amount of husserl i mean i, I just found the uh, wrestling with his text so <laughs> so interesting uh, so yeah i'm sure hannah and i are with you on that as well reading mm-hmm. plenty of husserl at the moment <laughs> Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's quite refreshing to hear that it's not focused on Heidegger. So, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, Heidegger was also a puzzle. Uh, and yeah. and uh, I, I enjoyed really, in a sense, uh, getting more into the history of philosophy through, through Heidegger. Uh, and uh, I also found people, well, I mean, I found people um, like Brentano uh, and William James, uh, since they influenced quite, you know, quite a bit, uh, both of Husserl and and then Brentano and Heidegger, um, I found uh, it, it's it, nice to kind of go back into the history of it to see how it all, you know, came about. So I still have interest in those areas. Sure. Yeah. Some of the kind of deeper sort of philosophical roots to to phenomenology. I guess that's one way of of kind of entering into phenomenology. I guess the other one is sort of based on the kind of range of topics and themes that can be covered from a sort of phenomenological perspective. I was wondering, is that part of the methodological appeal for you that, that phenomenology can be Kind of applied to such a broad range of subject matter. Yeah, I think uh, I think so. Uh, I mean, I always liked the idea that philosophy could be about anything. <laughs> you know, it could be, it can be used in almost every discipline, and and you could do philosophical types of analyses, various concepts. You know, what people were doing uh, methodologically and so forth. And uh, I think phenomenology is the same way. I definitely like also the kind of possibility of using phenomenology in very pragmatic context. So my background, uh, my graduate training, as I said, was in phenomenology, but my PhD thesis was uh, very interdisciplinary. I was, I was working on Merleau-Ponty, and uh, I was reading the psychology and uh, the neuroscience and trying to sort of update um, you know, the kinds of insights that he you know, he, he was also influenced by psychology and, and neurology, you know, of his time. But I was trying to update that, focused on questions about the body and about temporality. And that sort of just got me into those scientific literatures. But, but what I was starting to see was that the phenomenology was very relevant to understanding various psychopathologies. Uh, and then uh, then I started to read uh, more cognitive science and kind of discovered that philosophy, not, not just philosophy, but uh, phenomenology had some relevance there. But I think I've always been something of a pragmatist. Uh, I was very inspired by John Dewey uh, in my graduate years. And uh, I like to see sort of, you know, what Dewey would call the cash value, you know, how it applies in various places. And I think phenomenology allows you to do that. Absolutely. And I think that quite nicely ties in with the next question that we wanted to ask. As you said, phenomenologists today often collaborate across these disciplinary boundaries. And you mentioned just some of the topics that you've applied phenomenology to. We've seen a broad range of fields, including theories in cognitive science, such as your 2015 text, the neurophenomenology of awe and wonder, uh, linguistics, the 2012 Empathy, Sympathy and Narrative article, 
um, as you mentioned, psychopathology and psychology and embodied cognition in your paper at the 2020 Speaking Bodies Conference, as well as social theory from your most recent book, Action and Interaction, published in April this year. So I'd just like to ask, what's that been like for you? Why have you explored so many fields and have any collaborations or personal relationships influenced your research interests and approach? Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Hannah, for mentioning all those books. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, up until the uh, early 90s, right? So I did my graduate work uh, and uh, finished my PhD in 1980. Yeah. A long time ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, then I, uh, I almost immediately uh, sort of turned away from the, the kind of research I was doing with Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology and psychology and so forth. Mm. And I, I wrote a book on hermeneutics. And that, that took me into the uh, early 90s. But then I, I got this wonderful invitation to a week-long workshop at King's College, uh, Cambridge in 1992. And that became hugely significant for me. So I met people uh, like Tony Marcel and uh, Andrew Meltzoff, the developmental psychologist was there, and Jonathan Cole, who's a really good friend who works in neurophysiology. And uh, I, f I found that uh, you know, at that meeting, it was, I, I think I had not really been aware of cognitive science up until that point. And I found myself as the kind of token phenomenologist almost <laughs> in a group of people who were interested in exactly the same topics. I mean, that included uh, people in analytic philosophy. Jose Bermudez, John Campbell, Naomi Alan was there. And they were all kind of interested in exactly the same topics that I was interested in. I was coming at it from a different perspective. But we were reading the same empirical texts, so to speak, and it seemed to work. We could communicate with one another. And then with uh, Tony, who's a psychologist, and Andrew and uh, Jonathan, I ended up co-authoring with them over the next few years. Uh, I think my first co-author ever was uh, with uh, uh, Jonathan Cole, who's a neurophysiologist. And I think, you know, for the next 10 years or so, I found myself co-authoring and learning so much from those people and, and was always with people outside of philosophy. To me, that was very interdisciplinary. Later on, I met uh, Francisco Barella and we interacted for about five years and I co-authored with him just a, a couple of months before he died. And I learned a huge amount from him as well. And these were all personal relationships well as professional relationships. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sort of sharing some of that, because I suppose it's it's possible to trace some of the collaborations and relationships that academics have through citations. But I don't know that we speak very much about that kind of organic process and formative process of meeting people and the influence that can have. So that was, that was really interesting. Thanks for that, Sean. It's mm. something that we sort of think about the BSB quite a lot because the membership is very broad. There are practitioners and psychiatrists as well as phenomenologists and independent scholars. So yeah, it's quite interesting to hear about that. Do you think it's important to write um, in an accessible kind of and relevant way as a phenomenologist to make 
that sort of theoretical work accessible to to other researchers? Or do you think this is kind of more a function of shared subject matter? I, I think it's really important to uh, to be as clear as possible and to write uh, in an accessible way. I try my best to do that. Sometimes I'm successful. I remember saying to uh, Marc Jonero, I won't mention the, the other philosopher's name, but mm-hmm. Marc Jonero was a, was a uh, French uh, neuropsychologist. And I said, uh, you're quoting my work, but there, you know, there are a lot of much better philosophers out there. Uh, why not read so-and-so? And he says, oh, yeah, I've tried to read him, but I couldn't understand what he was saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so the accessibility, I think, is really important if you're trying to work across disciplines. It's tricky, too, because sometimes you find yourself uh, using terminology that you think you, you understand from your perspective. The other person you're working with is really coming at it from a different perspective and has a, a somewhat different understanding of a particular word. And you have to try to discover that as you as you work your way through this. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, as I say, that's part of how I, I learn quite a bit. Uh, also, I, I uh, with uh, Jonathan Cole, I did a little bit of empirical work. Uh, we worked with uh, David Neal in, in Chicago on... Uh, gestures. David uh, David's work on gestures. We we were looking at Jonathan's, uh, I guess, patient. I'll say, yeah, patient. Uh, uh, Ian Waterman, who is lost proprioception and touch from the neck down, and is a, a very unique kind of case to look at, to ask about, and and how exactly it is possible for him to gesture when he has such profound difficulties with instrumental type of movement, but. Uh, that was really a very interesting experience of not only learning how some of the empirical work gets done in, in those kind of experimental situations, but we were also being filmed by uh, uh, people of the, the Horizon program on BBC, or mm-hmm. one of the channels in, in the UK. Uh, and then they had a whole set of constraints that they were working with. So the experimenters on one side were saying, These are the, this is the way we have to do this. And the TV people on the other side were saying, no, we, we had to arrange it this way so it looks good on television. <laughs> so there had to be an, a constant negotiation going on. Uh, and that was just fascinating to see mm. how all of that worked. I think it, in some sense, really expands uh, the, uh, the venue for, for phenomenology. Definitely. It sounds like some of those collaborations have been really um yeah, really exciting in terms of moving across those different um, kind of understandings of definitions and concepts and um, approaches to to working with participants as well. So, yeah, really, really interesting. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd just like to say as well, um, from one of the first points that you mentioned um, about your writing style being um, accessible is your text, What is Phenomenology? That was my kind of staple <laughs> uh, during oh. my undergrad. Um, as someone from a linguistics background, um, really oh. helped me to understand or at least try to understand what was going on with um, the subjects of phenomenology. So, so yeah. Great. Yeah, thank Beautiful. you. Um, I just want to ask as well, your most recent publication, Action and Interaction, um, it offers a really fascinating argument for social cognition and social theory as a basis for understanding phenomenology, rather than uh, more orthodox theories such as simulation theory and theory theory. 
is this what you envisaged your research moving towards? And what I mean by that is highlighting the, this gap and providing a social embodied phenomenological explanation of experience. And was that, in a sense, informed by the empirical research that you've done previously? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that book, it's been in the works for at least 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think I wrote a couple other books in between. But, uh, but that one I was working on for a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been working in that, that area for, for quite a while. So I guess the short answer is something like I did plan out to be working in that area, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When I first got into it, um, it was sort of, you know, I find myself sometimes pulled in one direction or another uh, just by the various people I come in contact with and various invitations that kind of come out of that. Yeah. And so I found that uh, definitely when it came to questions about uh, social cognition and social interaction, phenomenology uh, and, and pragmatism uh, and the kind of inactivist uh, approach that uh, Francisco Varela was very uh, influential in, uh, in, uh, in originating. Um, all of that sort of came uh, to bear on questions about subjectivity. So I found that I had quite a bit to say uh, on that, and I started working uh, in that area. And then I started working on the book, and it took a while to sort of put it all together. Um, but uh, it wasn't uh, that I had, you know, a master plan coming out of grad <laughs> school or anything like that. Uh, it's just more you, you just find yourself pulled in this direction, and and see and you see what you can do and and then and then yeah then sometimes it, it, you spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and and then you end up with something yeah and thank god you did uh oh well <laughs> uh, it keeps me busy anyway you know, out of trouble <laughs> That, well, that does seem to be a kind of movement within within phenomenology right now, sort of moving towards an emphasis on on sociality and and different aspects of social theory in relation to phenomenology. And and I know in this recent publication, you you are emphasising different dimensions like agency and recognition and justice. Um, and we sort of see that in kind of more contemporary other other contemporary publications in critical phenomenology. And I suppose mm. I, I'm interested just to to ask whether you think this is where the field is being pushed right now, or, or if there's any other kind of new research that, that's especially exciting to you at the moment. Yeah, um, I think I have done some some work that uh, you might call engaged phenomenology. And I can give you a number of examples. So, for example, I've been, uh, over the last dozen years or so, I've been going to Tromso, Norway, where they have a really unique program for training physiotherapists. Um, they, so I go every couple of years and I, I do a couple of days of lectures on phenomenology, uh, the phenomenology of embodiment, especially. Because when phys uh, physiotherapists go into their clinics, they, they tend to look at the human body from a kind of objective medical perspective. And uh, part of this program, which makes it so unique, is that they uh, uh, use uh, kind of phenomenological embodied approaches in their as a kind of theoretical basis for their training. Um, so uh, 
again, that seems to me to be a very kind of pragmatic uh, use of the phenomenology. And something similar, too, uh, um, maybe back in uh, yeah, 2000, I don't know, uh, 2007 or 8, or something like that, uh, Dan, and, uh, Dan Zahavi and I uh, got involved with uh, a place called the Elaine Elsass Center, uh, which is just outside of Copenhagen. And uh, um, they they develop in tr uh, treatments and they do research on cerebral palsy. So they're working with a lot of children uh, with cerebral palsy and along with the children, their families uh, are involved. And they base their program on two things. So one is brain plasticity, but the second is a, a phenomenological embodied approach. And Christian Martini, who was a student of Dan's, uh, he did his PhD at the University of Copenhagen, uh, uh, worked at the center while he was doing his research. And he was showing how phenomenology could be relevant just to that kind of research and, and uh, developing those kind of thera therapeutic programs. Um, Christian really did all the work in this area. Uh, mm -hmm. But that was after uh, uh, Dan and I met with uh, Peter Bild was the director of the center. And uh, Peter uh, invited Dan and I to what I think was an astonishing presentation at the center, where he explained how their program was based on principles of neuroplasticity and on my book, How the Body Shapes the Mind. <laughs> so this was fantastic. I liked it, <laughs> obviously. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, he was drawing on... Um, the kind of phenomenological concepts of that, that I I was using from Melo Ponti of body schema and body image and sense of agency and so forth, uh, and he was uh, he was explaining to us how that got integrated into uh, the kind of design of the various therapies. Um, they have a really unique design where they they have the children playing games like uh, virtual games, or, you know gaming on the internet and such, uh, but specially designed and updated uh, uh, so that they have to actually move in certain ways and exercise in certain ways in order to play the game. Um, and this, this you know, then generates uh, uh, plastic uh, changes in their brain, and, uh, but, uh, but they're thinking about you know, movement and body schematic process at the same time. So it's really fascinating. That is, I think. Um, and you mentioned critical phenomenology. I'm I'm a big fan of Lisa Gunter's uh, and mm. her work on solitary confinement. Um, and we had a, a workshop at Memphis uh, a few years ago on torture and solitary confinement. And uh, I ended up writing uh, an article uh, on solitary confinement and some of the kind of legal issues about cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, and that led to uh, uh, being contacted by uh, the Trent University Center for Human Rights um, because uh, they were doing pro bono work defending uh, a prisoner who had been locked in solitary confinement. Uh, but this prisoner uh, was someone with autism. And, and uh, the question you know, was, and they want me to sort of give them some advice on this, uh, about you know, what, what, what would the influence uh, of solitary confinement be on uh, on an autistic person, mm. and that was a few years ago. And then just recently, they contacted me again, 
because there's another autistic person in solitary confinement in, in Northern Ireland. So uh, that's very rewarding to me. You know, if, when I say I, I'm a pragmatist, I mean, I like to see, to see how all of this kind of comes out in, uh, in these kind of very practical uh, type contexts. Absolutely. I mean, it's all testimony to the the multiple ways that phenomenology can can be relevant and incorporated into practice. And I think there's yeah. a, some fantastic examples of that. So in in academia, there is uh, more institutional pressure than ever for researchers of all disciplines to consider impacts and public engagement in their work. How do you receive this research culture shift? Do you think it's an unhelpful demand or a potentially fruitful direction for phenomenologists to explore? Yeah, so impact and uh, the REF in the UK, I'm <laughs> familiar with that, yeah. Uh, and I know that a lot of people in humanities, I'm sure it presents problems of, you know, if you're working, if you're devoting your life to a study of Aristotle, <laughs> how are you How are you impacting, you know, on street level? Uh, it's hard to say, but, but I think people have come up with uh, interesting ways of doing that. Um, I had a position at uh, the University of Hertfordshire uh, for a little while, a kind of part-time research position, and I was working with uh, Dan Hotto there, and and we had to put together, you know, one of these uh, uh, reports, uh, and, and impact was a big part of, of the report, um, and we were able to, uh, you know, come up with a, a project, and uh, it, I, th- I think it actually was something very, very good for both of us um, because it forced us to, to ask, not only to ask, you know, how, how does this work? We've been, we were working on some, some stuff on embodiment and narrative practices. Uh, and we were asking, how does this stuff, you know, get practically applied? And that forced us to go out and find people. And, and, and we were able to find, uh, specifically in, in the area of psychiatry and uh, psychotherapy, uh, people like Thomas Fuchs and Joseph uh, mm. Parnas, uh, in actually not not just in trying to think about how it applies, but in actually going out and interacting with people in those kind of settings, we again we kind of learn so much from that, uh, and it comes back, you know, it loops back into your theoretical work, so that you know you get more insight when you go out. You see what works and what doesn't work, and how they're using these things, and then you come back and you can you can uh, reconsider and rethink things. So again, I think that's really again this kind of pragmatism at work uh, that that is really uh, something phenomenology is. Dan Dan uh, Pato and I have a running joke where I send him uh, email about impact <laughs> whenever. <laughs> Whenever I get a notice uh, that uh, someone has been using my research for odd, weird things. <laughs> so I get these kind of Google notices and, and every now and then all this you know, odd stuff comes up. So like it was a, a, a paper on explaining frequent uh, was it, uh, drill rig breakdowns at copper mines in Zambia. Wow. <laughs> and, and it was kind of, you know, so I went to look and see what, how does that relate to what I do? Uh, and they were, they were interested in, in the phenomenology of the operators, the experience of the operators of, of these rigs. And they, they, so they referenced uh, my work uh, on that. And there was another very recently 
uh, paper uh, about developing a sense of agency for heavy machinery operation. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I worked on sense of agency. It was another about fishery management in Northwest U.S. fisheries. And I have no idea what they were doing. But the most recent one was something uh, about understanding the paranormal in medieval Iceland. Oh, wow. So I'm I'm always fascinated by these obscure types of things. But I always send an email to to Dan and say, hey, look, my my work is having impact. (laughs) And why not? (laughs) Far-reaching. We can build a project around these things. Yeah, right. (laughs) So it's funny. Yeah. And that's amazing because it can be applied to so many different things as well. And But the fact that different subjects are looking to phenomenology and looking to these theoretical theoretical mm. things to be able to explain what's going on or how, how something should be approached is interesting in and of itself. But very niche subjects there. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <yeah. laughs> so along with um, the kind of impact that your research has had this year Uh has been a a strange one for for as many other reasons as well um but with great changes to both personal and political experiential norms do you think that academic phenomenologists have a role to play in responding or commentating on this Mm. oh i think so probably uh i think a lot of philosophers are thinking about this type of thing and phenomenologists sure there's all kinds of issues. I mean, yeah, many of them are really upsetting if you if you think about the people who have died, um, but also all the political nonsense that's going on, mm-hmm. especially here in the U.S. Uh, the the real uh, information chaos, I would call it, where I like you it. don't know who to believe. Uh, you know, there's so much misinformation out there and so forth. I think that's. There's a lot of stuff to be uh, investigated from a philosophical perspective. Yeah, a couple of my uh, my colleagues and I were thinking, this was before the pandemic, we were thinking about uh, a project on solitude mm. relating to uh, the negative side of solitary confinement, but also the more positive side of people who, who seek out solitude and, and benefit from it. And we were, we were kind of asking, you know, what? What's the difference there and so forth? But then uh, COVID hit, <laughs> and then there were so many people in solitude. Um, we thought that uh, uh, there was some opportunity for research there. So we, we had, had this project. We collected oh, about 200 narratives from people uh, through the Internet, uh, uh, from people who were like quarantining and who sometimes were isolated. We spent all summer uh, analyzing these narratives. Uh, uh, so we, we did a lot of work on that over the summer, but I'm not quite sure what to do with them uh, right now. <laughs> so we're still trying to find our way. But we have a lot of data already. Yeah, that sounds fabulous. We'll look forward to, yeah. to finding out where that, where that takes you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really interesting. A nice scoop there from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stay, stay tuned. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of us have been in our own ways, kind of coping with different kinds of solitude this year, not least those of us, well, including those of us working in phenomenology. And um, I suppose it kind of takes us on to our next question. 
Um, Because we rarely talk about the process of preparing to do philosophy as an academic and and what it takes to kind of get into the right headspace, whether we use sort of non-philosophical sources of inspiration or reflection or different activities to try and um, reach a place where we can we can do our work. And we were wondering whether there's anything that you like to do or engage with in, in that kind of way and whether it informs your approach and perhaps whether it's had to change a bit this way um, this year. Sorry. Yeah, I, one thing I do like to do is travel a lot, and that certainly has been impacted by by the sure. by the pandemic. Um, uh, most of the travel is for professional reasons, all right? Of going to conferences and meeting and discussing with people at conferences and then at pubs afterwards. So that's, <laughs> that's a, an important practice, I think, for philosophers. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so all of that has pretty much changed this year, for sure. Um, I mean, Zoom is one thing, but it's not everything uh, that, that you can do otherwise. Mm. And uh, I, those those types of meetings that I, uh, I I go to, a lot of times they're interdisciplinary meetings. And I learn a lot there. Uh, just sometimes just uh, getting updated by uh, about recent uh, empirical research. So that's one thing. Uh, every every few years, I, I go somewhere uh, for a couple of weeks or a month, and I I live like a monk. Yeah, wow. just by my on my own, and uh, I I cook for myself, and I sleep, and I do I work, I you know I write, and I I like doing that, but uh, but that's I can't do it too often. I do uh, some uh, Tai Chi. Uh, exercise uh, and that's Tai Chi is about kind of organizing movement and spatiality and I always think that has some effect on the organization of my thinking <laughs> that I think spatially sometimes and I always think that bodily movement uh, Tai Chi has some kind of impact on that but, but I've never really studied you know that yeah, no, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, we've done a couple of these interviews now, and that does seem to be a running theme when we, we ask this kind of question. People mention yoga or, or rock climbing or Tai Chi or whatever it might be, and there definitely seems to be something there about um, you know embodiment and thinking about embodiment. And physicalizing before you do something or helping you to, to align your thoughts. Because you're a very busy bee, so I can imagine that's quite hard to... You know, there's lots going on. Uh, As you said, there's a lot of publications and things like that going on this year. So I, I, yeah. I can't imagine how much Tai Chi that you've had yeah. to do. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, I confess, I'm a, a workaholic. Luckily, my family understands this. I have a great. My wife you know, allows yeah. me to do my philosophy and all of that. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Um. I will ask you a final question, if that's okay. Um, okay. And it's kind of keeping along this theme of of uh, not necessarily doing philosophy, but thinking about it or how you uh, align your thoughts. Is there an, an artistic work, like a painting, a poem, a song, something like that, that helps you think about the dynamics of listening or even something like empathy in relation to phenomenology? And could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, um, I have to sort of confess that uh, I've uh, I've always thought that I uh, that I'm you know my my work uh, really hasn't 
you know, hasn't uh, uh, made love contact with aesthetics or the arts. But recently, uh, I think because of the kind of embodied uh, stuff that I have been looking at, uh, I've, I've started to work on performance yeah. and uh, expert skill in sports, but also in the performing arts and like dance and music, acting. So I actually have a book coming out uh, on this in June. And uh, uh, all of this work on performance and the performing arts uh, then has led me to think about art and aesthetics from that perspective. Uh, so from from the perspective of the performer rather than from the per- perspective of the consumer yeah. <laughs> of art or whatever. Um, so... Uh, Part of this uh, uh, builds on a paper I wrote with my daughter, uh, Julia, who is a, uh, an actress. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, again, like going you know, across disciplines. Um, but we had this question about uh, empathy uh, and whether uh, an actor could empathize with her character, character she was portraying or performing. Um, so... Uh, so we worked together in that, and it turns turns out that uh, we looked at a lot of different theories of empathy, including you know Stein and Husserl and phenomenologists, and also Dan Zahavi's recent work on empathy. Um, uh, so there's a lot of different theories, simulation theory approaches, and so forth and so on. Um, uh, and then we looked at different acting theories. Uh, Julia helped quite a bit with this. Uh, and, and it turns out that, it, you know, the whole issue of empathy depends to some extent on the, the kind of acting methodology that you use in order to, to approach uh, the, uh, the, the performance. I, uh, you know, that was, I think, very interesting. Um, I don't think I have like one particular work that I could point to um, uh, as sort of my favorite of painting or a poem or anything like that. Uh, but I have a I have a PhD student now working on an inactive account of dance. So this is a wow. Christian Kronstedt. Um, and uh, so I've always, uh, uh, I've always thought of dance as a kind of metaphor for social interaction. Um, and uh, actually on the on the cover of my uh, of that uh, the book, the action and interaction book, the cover is by a Nigerian artist, uh, Ephraim uh, Revpu, uh, who is actually uh, a neighbor of mine in Memphis. He has an art gallery right across the street from where I live in Memphis. Anytime I go in there, his work is stuff I love. It's beautiful. And wow. I, if I could afford it, <laughs> I would you know, buy it and put it in my, my home. Um, so I love his work, and especially the colors. Just, he uses color such a great point but the, the cover art uh, on uh, on the book is one of his paintings uh, called carnival fever and it's really uh, people dancing um, and you can actually see you know, sort of see the movement and the interaction uh, that's going on in that so i thought it was a very appropriate uh, uh art uh for the, for the cover of that book um, and so maybe that's just the the last past year that's probably my my favorite painting <laughs> but uh, uh that whole idea when you can when you can capture movement and a kind of 
interaction. And there's a lot of uh, a lot that artists can do in that respect. So, uh, there's probably a lot that I don't know about there. Well, that's fantastic, really. I mean, if there was ever a, an incentive to go and look up your book, you've just given a great one. Go and check out the yeah, cover. Yeah, just just for the cover, really. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's excellent. excellent. <laughs> it is beautiful. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been really such a fascinating, fascinating talk with you. And um, yeah, we hope that our listeners will have enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Thank you, Jesse. That's great. Thank you, Hannah, also. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Good. Hello, it's Matt again. I just want to say thank you to Sean, Hannah and Jesse for that fascinating interview. Just as a reminder, we have 99 other episodes of the podcast available the two most recent episodes coming from Jesse and Hannah. The BSP podcast will be taking a break for a few weeks now, and we will return in late January with more presentations taken from our 2020 annual conference, Engaged Phenomenology. To find out more about the BSP, our podcast, and our summer 2021 online conference, The Future is a Present Concern, check out our website, www.britishphenomenology.org.uk or search for British Society for Phenomenology. Thank you again for listening.